Hello, all, and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT News of the Week. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino. I'm an editor at Gestalt IT. Joining me from across an ocean, from a land far apart, is my guest co-host today. He's an EFF member and co-owner of Tech Unplugged, Max Martellaro. Max, welcome to the show. Hey, uh, hey Rich. Sorry. Uh, glad to be here. <laughs> That's the habit. Uh, <laughs> All right, so we are going to get the show started. There's just too much news out there to go into a full-length discussion, so we have a little segment we like to call News or Not. I'm going to set up these stories for you, Max, and you're going to tell me if they're news or not. Give me a little bit of rebuttal uh, if you want to justify yourself. If you feel completely confident, you can say News Not, Pass On, whatever floats your boat. Uh, first up here, interesting news from Google Alphabet CEO Sundar Pichai announced that Google will extend its work from home policy until at least July 2021. We've been seeing companies pushing these dates back, uh, Google seeing uh, putting, pushing it back seemingly the farthest. This extends to Google's roughly 200,000 full-time and contract employees in its major offices in Mountain View, California, as well as in the U.S., U.K., India, and Brazil. Google has partially reopened some smaller offices in countries are relatively unaffected by the COVID-19 pandemic. Yes, those do exist, including Australia, Greece, and Thailand. So, Max, news or not? Well, uh, ads in the world are kind of uh, taking measures to protect uh, human lives and, and people. And uh, I think that uh, it's a sensitive move to, to protect their employees. And, uh, I mean... Of course, I encourage everyone to uh, to be cautious. By the way, out there, stay yeah. safe, folks. Definitely, definitely. And <laughs> you know, it's funny. Uh, we saw CES, the the Consumer Electronics Show in the U.S. They had maintained that they were going to have a physical show in twenty twenty early twenty twenty one. They've recently kind of said, mm, "Nah, it turns out no." Yeah. I imagine we're going to be seeing a lot of these moves. It's just interesting to see Google giving their employees basically a full year to kind of plan for not working from home. I think that'll have some impacts on the real estate market in Silicon Valley for sure. Yep. Uh, next up here, uh, another Google News. They announced new security features for G Suite. Gmail will test showing a brand's logo as an avatar in an email to indicate if a message is authentic. Basically, verified senders. This will rely on brand indicators for message identification standard and used in conjunction with the domain-based message authentication reporting and conformance uh, protocol, otherwise known as DMARC. It's pretty common in email, which helps stop uh, scammers from forging from addresses in email. Max, news or not? Kind of, kind of. I mean, every uh, every security uh, improvement is always welcome. The, the thing is, is from an ergonomics perspective, if it makes sense to users, if they're able to understand that, you know, if it's just something that they will totally ignore, uh, you never know. I mean, yeah. I, and my only question is, then I just feel like this moves the target for how to change your phishing if you can find a way to kind of artificially show. You know, it just changes the target to me. But any way you can you can add a little. Uh, a little common sense, I guess, to uh, to email security never hurts. Uh, so we got Mobility Field Day going on over at techfieldday.com, and Miss Systems is actually going to be presenting. I don't exactly know what's on the agenda for them, but uh, their owner, Juniper Networks, has announced Juniper Mist WAN Assurance, a new cloud-based service that brings its AI-powered insights uh, they've used for Wi-Fi, that Mist has used for Wi-Fi and that Juniper acquired, uh, to WAN and branch networks. This can enable things like customizable WAN service levels, proactive anomaly response, and supports using their Mavis conversational interface, otherwise known as uh, basically a virtual assistant, to look at events across the LAN, WLAN, and WAN for things like fault isolation and remediation. So basically you can say, hey, what happened to that? What happened on that Zoom call? And theoretically you would get a response. I haven't seen an action. That's just kind of how they're describing it. Uh, Juniper integrating its missed acquisition across the network here, Max, news or not? I'm not a networking guy. <laughs> 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 oh, it's gonna be not for me, sorry. 
All right. Uh, next up here. Now, uh, you know, Max, you are a podcast guy. So I put this one in here just specifically for you. The AI-enabled podcast editor uh, Descript brought a feature called Overdub out of beta. This will create an AI voice double, letting you adjust a trans... So basically, it gives you the, the editor in a waveform and a transcript. And you can edit that transcript and have that audio be corrected to match the text. So if you screwed something up and said 4.5 gigahertz Wi-Fi and you meant 3.5 gigahertz Wi-Fi, it would theoretically change that. This launches as part of the Descript Pro tier. Uh, Descript is an, kind of an interesting approach, like I was saying, gives you that uh, kind of text and waveform editor at the same time. But audio deepfakes for podcast edits, Max, news or not? I don't know. I mean, if it was able to correct the stupidities I'm saying during my podcast, it would be even <laughs> better. But otherwise, why not? I mean, you know, editing a podcast is such a hard task that it might be finally one of the uh, let's say useful ways of uh, you know leveraging this kind of technology. So why not? Yeah, uh, this was like the plot of like a bunch of '90s like kids movies. I feel like where it was like they, they assumed a computer could do this, and now they finally can do that. Uh, so, <laughs> so we'll see. I, the other question is, why don't you just do the whole podcast? Just type in the whole transcript of the podcast and just click enter, yeah. and you can do that. That'll be kind of fun. Uh, next up here, almost two years ago, SAP announced it was acquiring the experience management platform Qualtrics for $8 billion just before the company IPO'd, like literally like four days before. <clears throat> Last week, SAP announced that it will now spin off that division, which will go public. SAP will remain the largest shareholder after the offering. Qualtrics and SAP's e-commerce platforms have been doing quite well during the COVID-19 lockdowns, even as SAP's mainstay businesses have been struggling, as many large customers are scaling back major projects, understandably, given the market can, or, you know, given the state of the world. Uh, but Max, uh, spitting out something you bought so that it didn't go public, news or not? <laughs> oh, man, uh, that's, uh, I, I'd say news, I'd say news because it reminds me somehow, uh, some of the, uh, high-level financial magic magics that uh, our friends at Dell Technologies or Dell have been mm -hmm. doing with VMware, right? So I don't know the background of uh, what's going on with Qualtrics and SAP finances, but uh, for sure, I have to say that uh, it was some good level 25, you know, sorcery from, from the Dell guys. <laughs> so uh, I wonder if the uh, SAP guys have the same financial advisors, but, uh, you know, if they make money out of it, good for them. Yeah. And if it uh, puts both businesses in a better position going forward, you know, playing to their strengths, well, we will see. And finally, yep. here on News or Nah, uh, Max, I know you love a good chip story. So last year, Marvell acquired a Vera Semiconductor, a custom ASIC maker, with a history stretching back, going through global foundries, and even before that to IBM in the 90s. Marvell has now announced it will be integrating this into a fully custom ASIC business, allowing customers to integrate custom customer custom customer IP blocks, easy for me to say, opening the door to businesses that need specialized silicon but can't design it fully themselves. Marvell obviously has uh, uh, extensive experience across basically every aspect that you would need in this regard. Marvell highlighted wired and wireless networking silicon, uh, as well as uh, custom data center silicon as potential use cases. We've seen companies like AMD have a lot of success with their semi-custom silicon business, kind of iterating on that and pivoting what was once just a gaming uh, uh, kind of product uh, going further into uh, things like AI and, and more specialized processing. You know, news or not here about Marvell bringing us a fully custom silicon to the masses. I would say definitely news. That's not a part of the uh, of the news, which I've been, you know, very closely following. But we're really seeing that a lot of companies lately have been building, you know, uh, custom chips. Uh, we see that for, uh, we, we, I believe that this ties into the Nebulon story. Uh, it goes into uh, things which are being done in the AI ML uh, world as well. And 
maybe if, if we get to talk a bit later about the, the Intel story this week, mm-hmm. uh, we see that a lot of organizations which are in the semiconductor industry are really, really uh, being aggressive into their uh, their strategy, to the products they're developing. So I think that there is uh, definitely something to be done there. I don't know what you think about it, by the way. Uh, I mean... I, I we, we so we recently did or I guess late last year we did a video um called the rise of semi custom silicon kind of cover you know like I'm fascinated by this right I'm I kind of came to love tech and IT and that kind of stuff as Intel was in its like you know like evil like most evil empire dominance uh, seemingly <laughs> like insurmountable so it's like it is super fascinating to see, me to see the semiconductor industry kind of completely flipped on its head where like these these monolithic architectures all of a sudden are the liability as opposed to the unstoppable juggernaut and we're seeing things you know first with nvidia honestly like if i like this to me if, if i'm nvidia i'm super worried I'm, I'm not super worried i guess but this is definitely a concern of me of some a company like marvell um, being able to theoretically, especially, you know, they're, they're investing very heavily in their data center business. Um, you know, they, uh, uh, they've been, oh, who were they just rumored to be acquiring? Now it's, I'm totally blanking on this. Uh, oh, they're rumored to acquire ARM, right? So if they're acquiring ARM, they acquired Mellanox. Those to me are all cloud plays. And if, you know, cloud data centers are interested in custom silicon, that's not necessarily a market that NVIDIA is. And so, I guess we did a mini discussion there on that one, I, but it is super fascinating to me. Absolutely. All right. Uh, our first full discussion, though, um, is a uh, it's a it's a story of tragedy. It's a story, perhaps, of hubris, uh, and we'll get into it. So Garmin suffered an outage that began in the early morning of July 23rd that affected its official website, call centers, the Garmin Connect data syncing service, Garmin's aviation database, even production lines in Asia. While services were out, users couldn't even sync uh, their fitness data through devices. Pilots were unable to do FAA-required updates to flight databases on navigation services. Uh, they couldn't even make calls or emails. At least that's what they were saying at the time, although that may have been convenient to avoid any press blowback at the time. <laughs> Someone just had a bad day. They didn't want to take any calls. Uh, services began to be restored on July 27th, a full four days later, and the company said the outage was eventually caused by a ransomware attack, clarifying that no customer data was ultimately lost or exposed in that attack. So I guess that's good. Uh, Garmin employees online said that this appeared to be a variant of the wasted locker ransomware and that they were asking for, the attackers were asking for a $10 million ransom. Uh, you know, Max, I understand that you were personally affected uh, by this outage. Um, yeah. Uh, so, I, I mean, I, I, I say as a Garmin consumer, I guess on one level, does this uh, make you not trust the brand to have that extensive of an outage? But on an IT level, we know ransomware is like the, you know, the new terrible hotness, right? When it comes to security, disaster recovery, whatever vertical you want to put that in. Uh, mm-hmm. How bad is it to see a four-day outage? And what does that say about Garmin's backend? Well, I think the, the, the worst thing, and I think you, you stated it right, I'm, I'm a customer, so I was affected. And you know that I'm really, uh, I like to rant and to, uh, to complain, especially on Twitter. So I was uh, kind of active on that field. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the, the worst thing in the, in the whole outage was Garmin's silence. I mean, this was really a, a peer and a communication disaster mm-hmm. because they could have said, you know, we have this thing going on, please be patient, we're assessing what's going on. But even if we look beyond the technology aspect, I know you want to focus on the, on the technology, the first thing you have to do is you have to, to be clear and honest with your customer, especially if you're such a big organization. And I'm not talking about, you know, uh, you know, uh, athletes and uh, wannabe athletes like me who are just riding their bike. But I'm talking about 
the business lines, uh, the lines of business from, from Garmin, which are really, uh, you know, critical, such as aviation and so on. I mean, this is no joke, right? So people have uh, life-saving devices mounted on their, on their personal planes. So this is, this is really no fun at all. So I think that uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's an imperative for this organization. I mean, for all organizations which are impacted by ransomware, of course you want to cover up the thing because nobody likes to be catched red-handed being, being hit by a ransomware because you never know, right? I mean, they could have implemented a lot of protections and things of this kind, but it can hit anybody anywhere. But I think there's a, there's a duty to be transparent to your customers. Let them know, okay, we've been hit by this thing. We are assessing what's going on. We're investigating if your data has been compromised or not, or if it's been leaked. And uh, we expect that we are going to get back, you know? Uh, that's what I like with some of the cloud companies. If you look at Cloudflare, we'll get to Cloudflare later, <laughs> and maybe Amazon and others. When there's an outage, they do a post-mortem. They say, okay, this is what happened, and, and that's it. So I hope we're gonna see a post-mortem from, from Garmin. Uh, now, if we get to the point of uh, uh, what's been what's been going on with the outage itself, I mean, uh, as someone who's spent a considerable time of his life in uh, IT operations, well, uh, the, beyond the frustration to Garmin, I'd like to tell the, the Garmin IT guys that, you know, uh, I guess that you've done a real lot of hard work and what you've been doing is really appreciated because we know that uh, it's always the, uh, the IT guys on the front line which are coping with the worst, right? But now there needs to be some assessment about what happened and uh, maybe some lessons are to be taken from what happened with, uh, I think, Maersk and there was another pharma company hit as well. Yeah, and to me, this kind of uh, reinforces the fact that even when you have uh, you know, IT mitigations, detection, uh, uh, remediation for ransomware in place, that a lot of companies still, at least to me, this is how I, I see it from Garmin, and this is to your point about the communication, is that they see this as an IT issue, right? This knocked out our system. We're working to restore it. We're going to put an outage thing on our website, essentially, uh, and say, uh, we'll let you know when it's when it's back up. To me, if this was part of a wider business continuity plan, there would have been, like the comms team would have gone active as soon as it happened. And exactly. that, that that is, to me, is like, it shows that they had a, a pretty narrow view of what a ransomware attack would mean um, and, and again, yeah, no one wants to be it, ransomware, I think, has everyone has outages. Every, you know, it, the weird thing is, if you look at this in terms of a disaster, if a tornado had hit a data center that knocked out services or something like that, everyone would have been like, you know, unfortunately, natural, you know, natural disaster. If ransomware happens. Uh, you know, you can like you were saying, it can hit you at any time. You can be as prepared as you want to. It's still going to disrupt things uh, at a certain level. Um, and, and I do think we need to get over this fact of it's there's there's a he very heavy stigma it seems like uh that makes you know organizations want to clam up and and i don't think that served uh anybody now on the consumer front yeah consumers were kind of annoyed i guess for a couple of days that you know they couldn't get their run points or whatever garmin uses for that but when you're talking about aviation when you're talking about you know production lines that could impact you know supply chains are already kind of uh you know uh, also disrupted because of COVID 19 having you know factory shut down for days it, it, that to me is 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 the really tr problematic part all right, next up here, uh, like you were uh, mentioning uh, with Cloudflare there, Max, uh, they announced the launch of a private beta for Workers Unbound, a new serverless cloud platform. The company actually began uh, offering a, a edge platform called Workers back in 2017, which will now be called Workers Bundled and kept uh, around for basic workloads. Essentially, it was started as an edge platform. Customers were using it for uh, basically for functions as a service, and so they kind of pivoted it that way. 
Uh, Cloudflare aims for workers unbound, this new service, to offer near zero cold start latency. There's some interesting tech on the back end, how they're kind of initializing, how they're kind of spinning up these workloads very quickly, uh, while being able to be 75% less expensive than AWS Lambda and comparing favorably to the other uh, serverless offerings out there. The service also supports Python natively and includes an SDK to add support for other languages. Workers uh, comes from the tools that the company uses for their own services, and Cloudflare says they aim to offer all of its internal services eventually to customers. At least that's the goal. The origins of the service almost sound like how AWS got started, actually, when you look at it. Uh, so, Max, my question is, can Cloudflare, seemingly ubiquitous part of the internet, make a dent in the serverless market? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a great question to paraphrase what some of the presenters say. And uh, <laughs> gaining time, right? I mean, uh, Frank, uh, you know, uh, serverless and uh, Lambda and uh, this kind of function is not my, uh, my cup of coffee, but uh, not even my expertise. But uh, why not? I mean, if, they're, if they've been using that internally and it delivers value and if it's cheaper than AWS, then certainly there's somebody who's looking at an alternative. I mean, for organizations which have already adopted serverless, maybe yeah. you provide them with better infrastructure. No, that said, I mean, Cloudflare, Cloudflare is a great company. They have great products. I'm using that for my website, so I can only be happy about what they do. But if you look at it on the, on the, on the other side of the coin, uh, whenever there is a, a misconfiguration issue on Cloudflare, you know, it's just somebody, oh, we forgot some semicolon somewhere or something. And, you know, half of the internet arc, right? So the, the question is, this is 75% cheaper than AWS, but what is the level of reliability of that thing? Yeah, and, well, and the, I guess the interesting part to me is that certainly there's nothing stopping any any startup from being, you know, forming anyone from starting a serverless startup, right? I mean, the, the, the idea of it is not, terribly complex on its face. I realize on the back end, there's all sorts of things you have to do. The issue is to compete with the public cloud providers that are already offering this is like, there's no way to, to scale that, right? Uh, in, in any kind of timeline. Cloudflare is kind of proven itself on the, the scalability front, at least, you know, kind of from how customers interact with it, right? I mean, if you look at the pie chart of, you know, who, who the percentage of the internet that's using uh, you know, their, their uh, reverse proxy, you know, DDoS protection and stuff like that. It's, it's like, if it's not a majority, it's a big old slice of pie, right? So they can, they, they definitely kind of have alleviated those concerns. And the, you know, the fact that they're doing it, I mean, AWS has kind of put out that model, right? Of, hey, we dogfooded, this was good enough for us. Turns out when you build a, a scalable uh, architecture, uh, that that suits your needs. Um, you can turn that around, and if it's it's, it's relatively novel, it's if it's innovative. You can turn that around, and that's a, all of a sudden another line of business, not just um, you know a, a kind of a, a, your own IT. So one of the great things that Cloudflare has, though, is their global, their uh, you know CDN, their their content distribution network, which is very really spread across the globe, which is uh, really close to the users, and therefore. Uh, if you're executing such kind of function, if you need to build a really highly distributed application, which is very close to the users, then I guess that you're going to probably, probably get even better latency than you would get uh, on, on a public cloud provider because you just get more ways or places to run it. Mm -hmm. I think another thing that they're highlighting as well is that their infrastructure is built on the CPU intensive machines. And therefore, it kind of gives a guarantee that even if they're, as they're building that thing, they kind of have the capacity to handle that and they can scale it up going forward as well. Yeah, they're in an interesting position and it's, it's kind of exciting, you know. Uh, they are a for-profit company, right? They're, they're not doing this just because they like the internet uh, and stuff like that. But 
they're they are in a unique position um to you know i don't i don't think lambda has anything to worry about right i don't think azure has anything to, you know to to worry about any any of these big services but uh if they can pivot this to be like okay you're already using our cdn and stuff like that you're not necessarily you know serverless has a unique a kind of position where you don't necessarily have to be a developer. It's like I just need I just need this one transformation function for this image, or I just need this yeah this this identification algorithm to run, or, or something like that. If they can just figure out a way to very easily get you to integrate that into their website, hey, you're already here, you're you're already doing this. Um, I, I could definitely see them uh, making an interesting value play for people that would not otherwise be interested in serverless. Absolutely. All right. Next up here, uh, big news from Intel. They announced Monday that it's that their uh, chief engineering officer, Dr. Venkata Rendu Chintala, will leave the company August 3rd. His technology service architecture and client group will then be split into five teams, technology development, manufacturing, design engineering, architecture and supply chain management, all reporting to Intel CEO Bob Swan. Reminder, Bob Swan, the guy who didn't want to be Intel CEO. This comes as Intel announced it is earning uh, in its earnings call that its seven nanometer processors would be delayed to market six months after they saw that internal yields were currently about a year behind projections. Evidently, they're confident that that won't come will be reflected to when they come to market with those. Semiconductor process shifts are incredibly expensive and complex. I don't want to downplay that in any way. But not too surprising, I guess, to see Intel do this reorg after years of these struggles. You know, very famously couldn't get off their 14 nanometer process, 10 nanometers, and now seemingly having those exact same issues. Uh, uh, Max, uh, surprised at all to see these kind of moves? Or, and does this strike you as too little too late? Uh, well, first of all, a disclaimer. I'll try not to be snarky, and I'll try to not bring up my flamethrower at Intel. Okay, because <laughs> I think they're nice things. But... No, looking at what's going on, I mean, uh, the fact that they needed to deliver on a schedule and that they're late is obviously a big problem for the organization. That's, mm -hmm. that's one thing. The other thing is that it's not just that they're late, it's that their competition is moving faster and that their competition has already, you know, seven millimeter processes. Some of them are going for five millimeter processes already. And the question is, you know, what does this mean in terms of viability of, uh, you know, Intel manufacturing on the long term, right? Because as you say, this is incredibly complex to set up. It's not just that you design a processor. You need, once you move from the design phase and you go into the production phase, it's extremely costly. You need to build new uh you know, you, you need to build a new fab, you need to have new uh, new hardware, new uh, uh, equipment at the plant to produce according to the new process. So these are investments which are in the range of billions of dollars to open a fab. I don't remember that, but I think mm -hmm. they, they had, I mean, it's a lot of money, right? And if you're doing that and you have problems with manufacturing and so on, the, the development cycle of a processor, I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert there as well, but I do remember talking with some Cisco guys about ASIC development cycles and they were talking that they are planning ahead for five years. So that, that poses a lot of, of questions about what's going to happen. You know, I mean, I don't know if you want to add something. I have a ton of things to say on that. So yeah, I'd like uh, to you. and it, you know, to your point, I guess the reason this doesn't feel necessarily late to me, although maybe this is reactive on Intel's part, is you're absolutely right. They were playing with the lead for so long 
that it did take AMD like three years, just on the x86 side. It took them like three years to actually catch up and now kind of moving faster um, than them uh, with Intel basically standing still. Um, and that in and of itself is, if they were just competing with AMD like bad enough, Intel has the you know the the sales network and um you know um a history of perhaps questionably legal tactics to ensure that they can get their processors and their systems into uh customers hands like i i don't think necessarily that's their their biggest worry although you know very significant that they're kind of flailing on that front uh to me it's also interesting you know uh yeah amd's at seven nanometers but you look at companies like samsung all of the arm providers i mean like seven nanometers is kind of in the rear view for them and they're they're like looking you know they're on their roadmaps they're talking about three nan you know five nanometers three nanometers stuff like that um and so as we are seeing kind of the the, the at least the the consensus about monolithic x86 being the de facto standard as, as we're seeing that consensus crumbling as as we're seeing the benefits of you know using workloads on more specialized architecture that to me is like at this specific moment is when intel is, is like having this uh yep. this manufacturing crisis so yeah and i'd like to close on that because i know that we might be running out of time yeah, right, so right. there's just so many things which play into that right because if we just look at the at the server uh business of course x86 applications are dominating at the moment so uh, they we can say that they have a, a good five to ten years margin at the very least because technologies are just going to go away just like you have still mainframes around mm -hmm. there are some workloads which will be see here still be here in five or to ten years i mean and that's the reality of how things move in the enterprises but uh they have this dominance because they've been using as you said they might have been using some tactics uh they they have this they are heavyweight uh, they have been developing a lot of things. I mean, if you look at what's going on in the persistent memory space, what you do with Optane is great, and Optane works currently only with uh, Intel processors, right? I mean, they're using that advantage, and Optane brings a lot of advantages in terms of you know increasing the density for virtualization and so on. But uh, if you look on the other hand, uh, AMD has quite valuable server technology as well. So now it goes to the to what we were saying before. Intel is able to leverage their partnership with other organizations and influence somehow what to do. For example, if I'm, uh, I mean, if you look at VMware licensing, for example, you know that they've introduced this kind of two-tier licensing based mm -hmm. on the amount of cores. Okay, they might have been introducing that as well if Intel had crossed a certain threshold. You know, like they've crossed the Rubicon of the <laughs> amount of cores. But Intel cast, yeah. didn't do that, and maybe who knows? We we never know because we are just you know poor, uh, let's say mortals. But it might be that somewhere somewhere was pushing and saying, okay, look, you need to help us. So just uh, cut down their uh, cut, cut down their legs and uh, license twice if they have more uh, more core density. So that's one thing. The second thing, if you look at the uh, at the consumer market, I mean. There are some applications which are really, uh, um, let's say, reliant on the x86 architecture. But for most of the things that we're doing, I mean, 90, 95% of the work we're doing, that we can do on a smartphone or a device which uses the same processor. So I don't want to tie into the Apple, you know, migration away from Intel and so on. But the mm -hmm. reality is, I mean, for most of the cases, unless you're crazy like me and want to run your old, you know, Star Tie Fighter emulator <laughs> in 2020, you probably don't need x86, you know, or you can emulate that. So, mm. I mean, the question is, to which point Intel is still relevant in the PC and the consumer grade market, or will be in the coming years? I really think what they're positioning to themselves to do is uh, have a plan. Ultimately, 
again, they, they've kind of put themselves in a position where they know now that they can't just out-engineer the competition, that the competition is not just x86, it's, you know, the, the target is changing in that regard, and that they're strengthening themselves up, at least in my eyes, to offer more of a platform play, right? So, uh, you know, uh, Optane dims, things that can run, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, super huge databases all in memory, or at least, you know, from a dim slot, uh, is an Intel exclusive thing. They're making investments in smart uh, uh, network interface cards. Um, so, you know, uh, to, 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 uh, basically they're, they've, they've acquired or have developed a, a number of technologies that are Intel exclusive that aren't necessarily x86 dependent, but that give you a benefit if you're buying an Intel platform that isn't necessarily quantified as, hey, my instructions per clock is a little higher or something like that. So I think that ultimately is how, at least in the short term, they're going to make the bet, maybe, but I don't even know a value play, but the best overall package as opposed to AMDs, which is we have the most cores, our instruction clock are great, and we mm -hmm. have a ton of IO, um, which is a really good position to be in for them too. So um, unfortunately, we're out of time. We had a, an interesting um, uh, story about uh, the New Zealand government putting together a charter about uh, essentially uh, uh, requiring government use of algorithms to be fully transparent in terms of like how they're being used and stuff like that. Uh, you can check it out in the show notes for a link to that full story. And we'll probably do a, a post uh, talking about it a little bit on gestaltit.com. But Max, where can people find more of your great stuff uh, if they want to check out uh, your writing, your tweets and, and all that good stuff? Absolutely. So uh, thank you. Uh, thank you for the opportunity, uh, Rich. So uh, go to uh, Twitter slash Dark Avenger with two Ks. That's my Twitter where I'm renting all the time. Uh, go to techunplug.io slash blog to see our latest blog posts. And we do uh, collaborate with Gestalt IT on some content. So check me out there. And my personal blog is kemchin.com. Excellent, so, excellent. Thank you very much. And you can find all that in the show notes as well. We'll be back next Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern time uh, on live on YouTube and on Facebook now, uh, streaming to you the IT News of the Week. Until then, for myself, for Max, for all of us here at the Gestalt IT family, here's wishing you and yours to have a super sparkly